If you were to say to me, Steve, you've been a Christian a long time, and indeed I have, what are, what are the top five challenges that you've had in your own Christian life? One of the top five I most certainly would include is a struggle with assurance of my salvation. This was a struggle mostly in my teens and in my early 20s, but it was the kind of struggle that was more than just sort of a passing worry or doubt. I agonized truly over whether or not I had actually met the conditions necessary to be saved. I would lay in bed at night and I, uh, I couldn't sleep. I was afraid that maybe I had not been sincere enough when I, when I prayed to receive Christ, or maybe when I prayed that prayer, I didn't say the words exactly right. And if I didn't say the words exactly right, then maybe I would find out someday when I died that actually I am not going to heaven, I am going to hell forever. As a teenager in and in a early 20s, this was a huge problem for me, and I struggled very much with it. Whenever I've shared this struggle over the years, I've had many people that have come up to me afterwards and have said, you know what, that's exactly my story as well. And so I know as I share that, many of you can relate to doubts about your salvation, wondering if maybe you might end up being discovered to be a phony in the end. And the stakes are so high that it can lead to a, a great deal of uh, terror. So my solution to this was that I would pray what was known as the sinner's prayer over and over and over again. As a teenager, I would ask Jesus into my heart over and over and over again. I went forward, at, I don't even know how many times, I went forward at church gatherings and youth events and camps and uh, I was just constantly trying to you know, do one more time just to be safe kind of approach, worried that maybe I wasn't actually saved. Now I look back at that and I am thankful, number one, that I was very sincere, and I was very sincere. Misguided, but sincere. Uh, and I wish that somebody would have taught Romans 10 to me. In fact, I wish I could go back and I could hear my own sermon today back then. Because what I'm gonna say today is what I needed at that point, and I know full well there's many, many of us today that need to hear what Romans 10 has to say. It would have saved me so much unnecessary doubts and fear about my salvation, and so I hope that this helps you today. So Romans 10, it's an unexpected chapter. Like if you're reading through Romans, you, you, you would never expect, expect Romans 10. You get to Romans 8, the sovereign love of God, you almost think Romans should end right there. But then it goes on to Romans 9, talking about the sovereign grace of God. And in a sense, you could say, okay, Paul, land the plane. We're done now. But he goes on into Romans 10 from the sovereign love of God in Romans 8, sovereign grace of God in Romans 9, to man's responsibility to believe in Romans 10. And there is mystery in how God is both sovereign and we are responsible and we acknowledge that, that there's things in the in infinite mind of God, I can't put all that together. But the Bible makes it very clear, God is simultaneously sovereign, and we are responsible to a holy God for the moral decisions and directions of our life, and for our failure to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, he 
gets talking about the Israelites and how they were confident that they were good with God because they had DNA connection to Abraham. And they had the Old Testament law, which they were very fastidious about following and obeying. They must be good with God. We're related to Abraham, and we're, we're living by the Old Covenant, so therefore, all is well. Paul says, no, all is not well. Why? Because in the end, the Israelites are under the same condemnation that we are in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, there is no distinction in our condemnation before God. We are all condemned before God as sinners. What do we need? We need righteousness that we cannot produce ourselves. We need righteousness that we find in the gospel only comes to us through Jesus and his righteousness accomplished on the cross, granted to us by faith alone. And so since it's this, by faith, and not the DNA or obeying the law, the good news is it means the gospel is available to every sinner. You might wonder, am I qualified to be saved? Are you a sinner? Then guess what? Yes, you are. Okay? Yes, you are. You're like, I'm a Jewish sinner. Doesn't matter. Gospel's available to you. I'm a Gentile sinner. Doesn't matter. Gospel's available to you. The gospel's for sinners. And if you're a sinner here today, the gospel is for you. That's the good news. Bad news is we're all condemned under the law. The good news is we can all be saved under the gospel. So since the difference between those that are saved and those that are not is faith, we better understand what faith is, what saving faith is. And everybody has faith. You had faith in your brakes as you drove here today. Okay, it's not just faith generically. We have to have a kind of faith and an object of that faith that actually saves. And this is where Paul goes now in Romans 10, wonderfully to provide assurance that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus are under the grace and the salvation of God. So Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, now quote, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a precious verse right there at the end. Okay, we're going to get to that. Before we get to that, though, I want to point out a few general things here, and then we're going to get to the main point. So Paul continues here in verses 11 and 12 to pound home that the gospel is available to all, to both the Jews and to the Greeks. And you might read this and say, Paul, you've already said this. Why the repetition? Okay, give it up. Let's move on to something else. We have to read the Bible the way that the people that received the Bible would have read it. And to realize those Jews at that, in that Roman church and whoever, whatever other Jews would have read this, this was a huge change. It's not just something you say, oh, by the way, yeah, it's available to the Gentiles as well, and now I'm moving on. He continues to pound home the point that the gospel is for everyone, for the Jews, for the Greeks, for all who trust and believe. This was a revolutionary truth. He says it this way, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
And the Jews would have read that. Oh, wait a a second. Ever since Abraham, there's been a massive distinction. There are those that are descendants of Abraham, and there are those that are not. There are those that are under the Abrahamic promise, and there are those that are not. This wall of division, this wall of hostility between these two has been there for centuries. And now Paul says there's no distinction. How can he say that? Well, I've already given it away in the early part of the message here already. Because all are condemned under sin, when Jesus died on the cross for sinners, it is without ethnic distinction. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your DNA is. It doesn't matter who your grandpa was. What matters is that you are a sinner that Jesus died for, and therefore the gospel is available to you. Here's Galatians 3 basically saying the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse doesn't mean that we're no longer Jewish or non-Jewish, Jewish or Gentile. No, we're still what we are ethnically. Any, any more than it means that to become a Christian means you're not a male or a female anymore. No, we're still male and female. What is he saying? He is saying that our primary identity is no longer as a Jew or as a Gentile, as a male or as a female. No, my primary identity now is that I am in Christ. I am under his grace. I am within his righteousness Paul quotes from the prophet Joel in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I want to note something out of that verse as well. That word Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That word Lord is the Old Testament word for Yahweh, the covenantal name that God self-revealed to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh. Here now Paul attributes to Jesus. Everyone who calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. No, Lord, Yahweh. I point this out to you because there are sometimes people that come along and they say, you know, it doesn't actually clearly say that Jesus was divine, that he was God, the Son of God. And yet here is another example. 6,000 times in the Old Testament, that word is, that name is attributed to God, and here it's attributed to Jesus. He is God. The New Testament over and over and over again says so. And those that say it doesn't don't know their New Testament or their Old Testament. Praise God that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a very simple promise for you. Maybe you wandered into church today and you're like, okay, what's this all about? Or maybe you've been wondering, how do I... How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Here's a verse for every one of us. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It doesn't say you might be saved. We'll wait and see if you're saved. It says you will be saved. You will be saved. You don't have to wonder, coming out of Romans 9, am I predestined? Am I elect? Is my name written in the, book of, the Lamb's book of life? You don't have to wonder about those things. What do you got to do? Call in the name of the Lord. That's the sinner's response to the gospel, is to call upon the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. 
Now, here is where I think so many people get confused, tragically, eternally tragically confused. They stumble, and I fear will miss salvation, and I don't want anybody here to do that. Look at your Bibles here with me. Notice, call in the name of the Lord in verse 13 is explained in verses 9 and 10. How do I call on the name of the Lord? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? And we look in the verses 9 and 10, it says, the heart believes and the mouth confesses. You see that? Am I accurate there? The heart believes and the mouth confesses. Now in verse 9, the order is that the mouth confesses and you believe in your heart. In verse 10, the order is reversed. It says, the heart believes and is justified, and the mouth confesses and is saved. The point is this. The order doesn't matter, okay? Don't get all stumbling over the order. Now, did I do it the right? That would have been me when I was 18. What if I did it in the wrong order? What if I said it and then believed instead of believing and then said it? Maybe I'm not, under, maybe I'm not saved. That's the way my mind went. I was so wanting to be buttoned down. Why? I want to go to heaven, right? So the order is not the point. The point is that the heart and the mouth have a necessary role in this. And to summarize that, we have in these two verses, the heart does something and the mouth does something. What does the heart do? It says, believes, number one, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, encapsulated in that is really the whole story of Jesus. You can't say, well, I believe that he raised him from the dead, but I don't think he died. No, of course he died. So we have cross and empty tomb. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, right there. The heart believes and is justified. There's that Romans word we've heard so much, declared righteous. Okay, so there's, that's what's going on in my heart. Here is what's going on with my mouth. Confesses Jesus is Lord, verse 9. Confesses and is saved, verse 10. So the heart believes and the mouth confesses. Neither of these are saving works or meritorious, righteous things that we do. Otherwise, salvation is, you know, by faith, except I've got to speak right or I've got to, you know, that's, again, 18-year-old Steve DeWitt getting all confused about this. What are these things? These are human after effects to the miracle of regeneration in the human heart. Like when there's an earthquake, it happens. You have the earthquake, and then what do they have after that? They have aftershocks. Regeneration. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again. That's the earthquake. That's the miracle of God in the human heart. The after effect of that is faith and confession. So the heart believes, the mouth believes. Confesses. Let me make it clear what is the heart here, because some of you may be a little confused on this. It's not the physical organ that's pumping blood to your brain. Some of you not enough right now. <laughs> what is the heart? John Murray, the heart is the seat and organ of religious conscience and must not be restricted to the realm of emotions or affections. In other words, this isn't your feelings. It is determinative of what a person is morally and religiously and therefore embraces the intellective, the volative, as well as the emotive. 
Biblically, our hearts are the real us inside, right? There's the us that we project. There's maybe the us that people get to know. But then there's the us inside. This is the the me that talks to myself. This is the me that prioritizes and values and treasures. That's the me inside. You have a heart. I have a heart. This is the heart Paul's talking about here. The heart trusts. The heart believes and the mouth confesses. Why? Because we have been born again by the power of God. It's like, it's like, is a baby, this is, hang with me, is a baby born because it breathes or does it breathe because it's born? I'll let you think about that a second. Because clearly it breathes because it's born. And we are born again in salvation by the power of God. The first breath is faith. The exhale is confession. So how do you know that a newborn uh, is born alive? A born-again Christian, what is it saying if you knew baby talk? Jesus is Savior and Lord. That's the confession. Both are critical. Again, neither are meritorious. Don't somehow think that salvation is, you know, I, I, well, there's a couple little things that I do in there. The rest of it's God and Jesus. But there's a couple, no, it's all God. It's all Jesus. This is the effect of God's work in our life. Okay, so let's just summarize this now. Election and predestination, Romans 9, is God in eternity past beginning to think about me in terms of love. He loved me before I even existed. This is election. Call is God's powerful summon through the gospel, drawing the sinner to repentance and faith. Regeneration makes our spiritually dead hearts alive. Faith is my personal trust in Jesus as Savior. Justification is God declaring me righteous forever. Confession is my mouth saying outwardly what my heart believes inwardly. Jesus is Lord. That's how God saves us. All right, now, despite Romans 10 and other passages making it clear about how God does this and what real salvation is, down through the centuries, and even in our own day, there is so much confusion and honestly distortion of that basic paradigm of the heart believing and the mouth confessing. What do we get if we distort it? I'd like to give you some examples of, a dis- of distortions of Romans 10. Here's a big one. Mouth, not heart. Confession, without belief. This has been a plague to the church ever since Judas appeared to be a disciple, but wasn't. How easy it is to confess Jesus as your Savior, but actually not have Jesus as your Savior. There are many, many people down through the centuries who have quoted the Apostles' Creed, who have sung in Christian gatherings, Christian songs, 
They might know the lyrics to Amazing Grace and sing it in important moments in their life. They have knowledge of the gospel. Their mouth might even say gospel things, but they do not have genuine belief in their heart. And how has this happened? Well, I think Satan obviously loves to distort the gospel, but oftentimes it's well-intentioned pastors and evangelists and even parents who desperately want people to somehow be expressing signs of salvation and who manipulate, maybe even well-intentioned manipulation, people into saying the right words in the hopes that it's actually true in their hearts. So let me give you a few examples. If you grew up in Christianity like me, you have no doubt heard what's known as the sinner's prayer. It goes like this. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I confess my sins to you. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I ask you to forgive my sins and give me eternal life. Amen. Many of you have probably heard the sinner's prayer. Is there anything wrong with the sinner's prayer? Not if it's combined with actual faith. If it's connected to a heart that is believing that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, resurrected on the third day, Savior and Lord. Nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. What is a problem is if somehow we create this kind of magical incantation. Just say this prayer with me right now. And everybody in the room, I, I've been to many gatherings like this. They say, the, the pastor or whatever, say, okay, everybody, I want everybody to say these words right now with me. Dear God, dear God, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, etc. And everybody goes through that. And when it's done, the preacher says, now, if you said that prayer with me today, I'm here to tell you right now, you're going to heaven. And the person sits back and thinks, looks around and thinks, really? That's it? That's all that it took? That was so easy. Why didn't I do that a long time ago? I just said the prayer with the preacher. And now I'm good with God forever. Never a worry, never a concern. I'm good. Is that what Romans 10 is saying? Perhaps you come, another example, perhaps you come from an ancient church background where it was expected of you at a certain age that you would participate in a process that all the kids your age went through in order for you to be welcomed into the church and accepted as a Christian. And so you took the classes, you had the meetings, you had the graduation ceremony, your mom was there, your dad was there, grandma and grandpa were there. They took pictures, they took you to ice cream when it was done. You made confession and were miraculously saved at the same moment with all the other kids your age in your church. You passed the written exam. Didn't get them all right, but you had, you know, got a C. 
Good enough. Pass your confirmation. You're good with God. Never a worry or a concern. That's what Romans 10's teaching, right? If you get 70% or better on your confirmation or whatever it is test, and Deacon Brown says you're saved, well then, don't even worry about it. You're good forever. Can I give you another example? Somehow, somewhere, I don't even know where this began, Christian people began talking about becoming a Christian in terms of asking Jesus into your heart. I grew up with this. I stand before you as somebody who prayed to ask Jesus into his heart at least a thousand times, okay? What does it mean to become a Christian? You've got to ask Jesus into your heart. Many parents, Sunday school teachers, again, well-intentioned people, I'm not questioning the sincerity at all. Is that the gospel paradigm? Asking Jesus into your heart. I see Romans 10, many other places. The heart is believing. The mouth is confessing. The heart is believing and trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. The mouth is confessing Jesus is Lord. And all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what I see. I know of no verse in the Bible that in any way insinuates that becoming a Christian is asking Jesus into your heart. And I fear there are somehow people that are confident they're going to heaven. Why? Because I asked Jesus into my heart. There's not one example in Acts of apostolic teaching where they said anything like that. And frankly, it's really bad theology. Not only does it get the gospel wrong, but when you become a Christian, Jesus doesn't come into your heart. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and indwells you. So it's a bad gospel, it's a bad Christology, it's a bad pneumatology. And yet people, I think there are some people that think this is what I'm believing here. Now that said, there are many people I believe who when they asked Jesus into their heart, they actually became a Christian. But it's not because they asked Jesus into their heart, it's because they were trusting in Jesus in their heart, okay? That's what saves. And that confusion, I wish I could just purge that whole language from all the families and all the ministries of our church. It's confusing and misleading. Churches have all these little cliche things, don't we? These incantations, these little magical, what's, you know, blah, 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 stuff. That we have to constantly evaluate, is that what the Bible says? Have we gone astray? But you step back, and when you think about the paradigm, heart believes, mouth confesses, and then think about the thousands, I dare say hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people out there who have prayed some kind of thing like that and who today are confident that they are right before God, even though it was their mouth, not their heart. In fact, I read a, a survey by Barna that 50% of Americans, this was 2011, were more probably lost now than back then, but 2011, 50% of Americans have prayed a similar type of prayer. Wasn't it great to know that half of America is going to heaven? I say that uh, sadly, sarcastically. I heard another 
statistic that 85% of Americans are confident they're going to heaven. And what's the basis for their confidence? It's not because I'm believing in Jesus in my heart and I'm confessing him with my mouth. Over the years as a pastor, I have asked many, many people, hey, tell me how you became a Christian. And the variety of answers that I've gotten in that moment honestly have been disheartening to me because they'll say, well, I walked down an aisle at a gathering or at camp or at some other thing. And what does the Bible say? With my heart I believed, trusted in Jesus, and I confess with my mouth, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. If I was to ask you, hey, tell me, how did you become a Christian? How would you answer that honestly? You might say, well, if the pastor asked me that, it would sort of put me on the spot. Listen, friend, you don't need to care what I think. Someday you're going to stand before Almighty God. You want to talk about the stakes being high, heaven and hell forever. What is your answer to him? This is one you want to get right. If there's anything in your life you want to get right, it's this. Mouth, not heart. Here's quickly a few other distortions. Mind, not heart. Mind, not heart. What is this? I mentally assent to the claims of Christianity. I affirm intellectually that there's a basis for the claims of Christianity. I'm assenting to the gospel. I'm nodding my head to the gospel. And that's all that I'm doing. What is this? This is the gospel minus transformation. This is, this is, the, this is the gospel minus me giving my life as a disciple to Jesus. You've probably heard it said, many people are gonna miss heaven by 12 inches. It's the 12 inches from here to here. How many of us even here today, if I gave you a test, you could pass the test. You could explain the gospel. You know a lot of this stuff, but it's never taken root in your heart. You have never in your heart surrendered in that trusting, believing entirely in what Jesus did, and you're gonna miss heaven by 12 inches. Here's another, Savior, not Lord. Savior, not Lord. This is confession without repentance. Now, a few people would say it this way, but there's millions of people that live this way, right? On their lips, there is a profession of Christianity, but the direction and decision of their life is entirely anti-gospel. But they think they're good with God. Everything's fine. Why? Because I have spoken the right words. This is the kind of person at school or at work where, you know, you've, you know, you've been discouraged by them. You, you, know, you see their life and it's just, you know, a train wreck. And, you know, they, have no, they, they take the Lord's name in vain. They have no care or reverence for God. And then all of a sudden it comes up and he says, yeah, man, I'm a Christian. You're like, really? <laughs> what church you go to? Oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, dude, when I, was, when I was a kid, I grew up with it, and I went to camp. I threw the pine cone in the fire. I gave my life to Jesus. Yeah, I'm good with God. And you know this person, and you look at it, and you're like, I see no evidence of God in your life. 
But you can't convince that person anything's wrong. Why? Because they think to themselves, I have to merely confess. This is where, for someone like this, words of Jesus, if anyone does not deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. That kind of verse, there's no category for them. He's my savior, because I need Jesus, but he's not my Lord. I'm not surrendered to him. To talk to people like this, they say, this is taking the whole thing a little too far. I mean, come on. Can't we sort of keep the Jesus thing over here? These are the people that that show up on Christmas and Easter. Because the miracle of the incarnation and the miracle of the resurrection are sufficient to celebrate a holiday. But that's the only time they give any time or attention to worship or the things of God. Every year I'm amazed at how many literally thousands of people will get excited on one day of the year. Mouth, not heart. Mind, not heart. Savior, not Lord. Do you see how all of these are departures from the basic gospel paradigm, which is heart and mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For from the heart, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so here's the invitation today. Do you Really, really, in your heart, have all your confidence and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. Not in the prayer you prayed. That's one reason I look back, I was so struggled with assurance, I was putting my hope in my prayer and in my sincerity and in the circumstances of when I became a Christian and whether I did it right or knew enough or whatever. Forget all that. It doesn't matter. The question is, is my hope and trust in Christ and in him alone? And if not, trust in him today. Forget the debate of the past and whether you've passed the exam with enough pet. Is your trust in Christ today? Oh, friends, how I long for Bethel Church to be strongly represented in heaven. Would that nobody here would miss it. Especially when it is so truly simple. What's true in your heart? Have you believed in your heart? In Christ. And from that then, flows the confession of your faith.